In this episode of the Luminous Arts, I talked with Mark Slee, the developer of the software behind the tree of Tenere. He's an accomplished producer and a light artist who runs a gallery out of San Francisco. We're both quarantined in separate corners of the world due to the coronavirus, with Mark in Montreal and me in the British Virgin Islands. Fortunately, remote podcasting is a thing, and our connection was solid, so hopefully it'll sound pretty good. We talk about the role of art in different parts of the world, how he became involved with Symmetry Labs, and how he developed his software, among other things. I've been looking forward to talking with Mark for a long time, as he's a prolific artist in the Bay Area community in the light art scene. He's a cool guy, and it's a really good conversation. I think you'll dig it. I'll start. Um... Yeah. So you're in uh you're in Montreal right now? That's right. Yeah, I'm in Montreal with my wife at her uh family home, just hanging here with her parents, doing the self-isolating thing. Yeah, man. It's uh it's crazy times. And you uh you came down from from uh Amsterdam. That's right. Yeah, we had been living in Amsterdam for about the last 6 months or so. Um and yeah, making our way gradually back to San Francisco uh, at the moment. Oh, that's cool. What were you doing in Amsterdam? Uh, kind of just a change of pace, mix of things. Um, my wife took a uh, design gig with a fashion designer actually out there uh, named Iris Van Herpen. Um, my wife's actually an architect, but she did that as kind of a change of pace. Um, and for me, I was mostly focused uh, actually on music production while out there, but doing a little bit of uh, a bit of programming work as well. Um, but yeah, basically, we'd just been living in San Francisco for quite a while and wanted to uh, do the whole live abroad thing, have a different experience for a while before, uh, you know, before we grow up, have kids and these things get harder to do. <laughs> yeah, man, I, I find that there's a balance, um, you know, a balance between living in San Francisco and traveling outside of San Francisco. And for me, it's about 30%. If I can spend 30% of the year outside San Francisco, then the remaining 70% spent in san francisco doesn't feel as mundane you know what i mean mm, yeah no definitely i think it's uh yeah there's there's great things about san francisco but it's definitely a more a bit of a, a more one track mind city so uh i definitely find it super refreshing uh yeah it's a Looking, weird place yeah, yeah. The, the more you, the more you travel the more you're like wow san francisco is uh you just start to really see it um for uh, more in more an abstract way, you know, more more like a high level view, instead of just being fully down in it. It's hard to to really see your surroundings when you're in the weeds. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, definitely have a similar experience almost every time uh, I go somewhere else. Do you travel outside the U.S. a lot? Um, no, I mean, yes, in general, not in a sort of specific way, um, but we usually at least once a year we'll we'll take some sort of trip. Um, my family actually is a. Uh, is English. My parents came over in the seventies. So even, even as a kid, I, we would be all my aunts, uncles, cousins, everyone, uh, our majority still in England. So, um, I do end up, uh, in Europe a fair bit just to see them. And then usually, uh, you know, creating a trip out of it. And the same for my wife, she's Canadian, grew up in Montreal, but, um, her grandmother also, uh, grew up in Austria and still, uh, spent some family time back there. So, so we pretty frequently do end up, uh, yeah. That's cool. Your your last name makes a lot more sense to me now. <laughs> it's Scottish, apparently. Slee. Yeah, I don't know. My... Is it? That's funny. I'm Scottish, too. Or oh, I'm, really? That's hey. my heritage, yeah. Nice. It's funny. My grandma, she was, uh, she was very uh, dead set against being Scottish, right? She, like, she was kind of racist against Scots, but her last name is McBurney. It was, <laughs> it was always like this weird thing where it was like, come on, grandma. You're Scottish. Yeah. She's did like, she no, know I'm not she was Scottish, or did she not think she was Scottish? I think I don't know, man. Honestly, I have no idea. You know, uh, people people get weird neuroses, and uh, they have they. Everybody's got weird issues with self identity, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think that was just one of her things, and I don't understand it, but you know, whatever. To each her own. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, Amsterdam's not a bad place, man. You were doing uh, you're doing music over there. Yeah, no, it was. We had a fantastic time. The quality of life in Amsterdam is just incredible. The cycling and um, it's uh, it was actually really interesting to compare to uh, San Francisco in some ways because they're extremely different cities, obviously, but they're about the same population. Actually, Amsterdam's also just a little bit under, right around a million people. 
Um, yeah. But it feels uh, the ability to sort of approach the city with the cycling is just so easy. You feel like you can get to know it very quickly and get around pretty quickly. Um, but the other thing that's just incredible there is the density of cultural stuff happening. The number of music festivals, the number of art festivals, art museums. We uh, just enjoyed incredibly having there be an abundance of uh of stuff to go see and i think it was sort of one of the ironies too actually coming from san francisco where where there is you know on the type of stuff we do burning man and technological art and whatnot um but i actually felt like we were able to find and experience uh just as much if not actually a lot more of that um out there just through the sort of uh just more of the kind of like public art ecosystem that they have there. Well, I think that's that's not unique to Amsterdam. That's a that's a European thing. For sure. You know, for sure, the, more yeah. I, the more time I spend in Europe, the more the more I understand uh, European culture. And when you meet people from Europe, it's a it's a very different outlook on life, and it's a very different outlook on on society and and culture and uh, and and capitalism even you know or, or the way like that uh society is structured and i think a lot of that has to do with fundamental values uh, of which art is um it's so rooted in in european culture and society you know what i mean so like, yeah uh, it's for sure in the united states it's uh it's it's like a like a the art scene is underground you know it's a very um it's a very counterculture. There's still a lot of art, but it's counterculture art. Whereas in Europe, the art is, uh, it's more structured, you know, it's, uh, it's part of the, it's part of the fabric that makes up the, the civil society. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think, um, that's something, what you were saying about counterculture rings very true. It was one of the things I actually really appreciate being in Europe is I, I do find that in, um, the Bay Area, at least, and probably most of the U.S., yeah, it is sort of um, participation and sort of more modern or avant-garde art is often, yeah, a big sort of a statement of identity or rebellion or a sort of an expression that you're a weird or unique or interesting person. And you tend to find that, you know, there's often uh, then will be style choices and fashions that go along with that. And you go to some of these events in the States and you have that feeling of like, oh, here's like, you know the group of uh, weird people that are into this stuff. And, and one of the things I actually really appreciated in Europe is you would uh, go to an art festival where the art was equally avant-garde and modern and innovative and challenging. Um, but the environment felt to me in a refreshing way, incredibly normal that, uh, that I really appreciated because I'm obviously super passionate about this stuff and love it. Um, but I kind of preferred experiencing an environment that reinforced that it's a valuable, normal thing to be interested in. And of course, a bunch of just regular people from town are going to come check it out because why wouldn't they? It's interesting. And sort of as you described, just sort of a normal part of life to go to an arts festival or something, see what someone's creating. Um, which, yeah, I just yeah. I definitely appreciated the contrast where uh, I, I often don't feel that exactly as you described in, in San Francisco. It often feels like this. Uh, this big weird underground thing which which has its own allure and i'm obviously well, that, that's like the source of the river you know if you think about it like a river it's like you know the, the river of, of culture that's flowing through uh, a society then you know the, the source of the river um like the source of the river in europe it's more um it's more like institutional not to say that there's not underground and um you know, like the festival scene in Europe is 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 huge, um, but I think that there's like a lot more funding, for, for example, that comes from institutions in Europe that encourages people, that allows artists to make a living, and it affects the whole, it affects the vibe. You know, it affects how how art expresses itself. Yeah, absolutely. No, I definitely agree, and I think it's it seems to be a, a strong relationship they've formed between, as you say larger established institutions providing funding but still being very comfortable um seemingly taking creative risks or uh or using that funding to yeah basically enable people to go try things some of which are going to succeed many of which are not going to succeed but that's fine just sort of part of the process yeah well there's also like a freneticism or like it's like frenetic here it's more of a there's more of a sense of urgency because if if your art does not succeed then you can't make a living 
you know what I mean? And yeah. it's um, in Europe, there's a lot more artists who are just like, yeah, we're artists, you know, that's what we do. And in the U S it's like, you have to have, you have to have a hustle. Right. You yeah. I was going to bring up that exact or, word hustle. Everything is uh, always a hustle. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And you know, you can debate uh, the pros and cons of that, but it's just, it's interesting to look at the differences that that produces in, in like the stream or, you know, like, like the stream of art, how, how that river flows. It's like, it's very much affected by, uh, yeah, the, the source of funding and like how, how, how people can exist inside that as a career. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I like that. I like that metaphor. You know, it was really interesting. When I was in Berlin, um, I went, you know, White Void? Do you know who those guys mm -hmm. are? Yeah, they had a, uh, they had a Christopher Bowder, actually. It was, he's the, he's like the, the founder of that, that company or group or whatever. He had an art exhibit. Um, it was an exhibition of, of this visual piece that he had created with, uh, with his, his group. And they had it in this abandoned train station. And, um, it was this massive building, but it was, uh, it was well publicized. It was, um, you know, like a, it was, there were flyers all over the place and it, it blew my mind how many people showed up for the event because it was like a strictly like a visual event, but they sold it out for multiple nights. And it made me realize like, wow, there's really a market in Europe for visual arts, the same way that you might go see a concert, you know, the same number of people were coming out for this thing. And it was a visual installation piece. I was like, wow, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure I know the piece you're talking about. They, uh, we were fortunate actually, they toured it to, uh, Amsterdam and, uh, presented it there in a With similar, the mirrors, the, yeah, the, like exactly. The, yeah. What was it Scalar, right? With, uh, Scalar, yeah, the yeah. music was with Kandang Ray. Um, if I'm getting the name right, but yeah, no, I had, I had the exact same, uh, experience with that. It was held, uh, in Amsterdam. There's a, a venue called the Chasshouder, which is like a big old, uh, used to be a gas containing building i guess um but where they have yeah now all sorts of different uh often will be rented out for art expos or all sorts of different events but same thing they had a run which um i think went for over a month and um with uh yeah quite quite a few of many of the dates were were sold out and this is probably uh, i think close to nearly five thousand people or something and i had the same yeah. reaction where i was just sort of mystified um in a good way i was like this is incredible that there's like, this wow. much interest <laughs> yeah. and demand people to come check this out and same as you said it's like the banners and the advertising for it uh we're just sort of up around town as a sort of just like, yeah, of course, this would be a totally normal thing for people to be interested in and come check out. Why wouldn't they? It's, uh, and it was, it was, uh, yeah, an incredibly cool uh, performance. And I was also uh, just mystified by, I was trying to wrap my head around, like, how did the tech writer work for this? And how do you even, yeah, how do you install this or something place? like that is, uh, is something else. Right. I don't know if do they it. brought the equipment or if they just re uh, rented it all in Amsterdam or something because it's just an incredible amount of uh, of hardware. So well you know their whole thing is the is the the motors, the controllable motor mm -hmm. array. So I don't I think they must have brought that. They must have. They must yeah. have brought their 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 set, you know, like the mirrors, maybe they could have gotten the moving lights. Right. Um, yeah, there's a lot of moving heads. Yeah, it was a beautiful piece, though, man. He's he's a badass. He's a real cool guy. I run into him occasionally at LDI and um, uh, some of the conferences, like the the show production conferences. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's fun. He's a cool guy to to talk to. So when you were over there, did you uh, work on any visual art? Or was it strictly uh, strictly music? Um, I was mostly focused on music. Um, I've been passively working a bit on art. I'm kind of always uh, iterating on my uh, on that sort of LX framework for the LED stuff. Um, and we are um, actually continuing to uh, work on a new edition of the Tree of Tenere, which we're uh, doing in collaboration actually with a Dutch um, studio called Studio Drift. Um, that had collaborated with us a bit on the piece at uh, Burning Man. And um, they're based in Amsterdam as well, actually. So spent a little bit of time uh, working with them on that, um, though that's mostly been in, in hardware stages at the moment. I tend to focus on the software side. So so what is Studio Drift? How did that tie in with uh, with the Tree of Tenere? 
Yeah, uh, Studio Drifts, I mean, they're an art studio um, based out of Amsterdam um, that they've been making art, um, I mean, for over a decade at this point, most of which kind of combines organic and digital elements. Um, So we had just um, uh, reached out to them when we were working on Tenere for Burning Man. Um, Zach, who um, initiated the Tenere project and led it, I think he'd met one of the uh, drift people, I forget where, just out and about somewhere. Um, and he was familiar with their art and as were the rest of us. So we'd kind of just pinged them and said, hey, you know, this is kind of probably may, maybe up your guy's alley. It's kind of doing this digital organic thing. So they'd contributed a bit, adapted some uh, programming that they had done um, previously. Were they mostly the, the software end or... Just, I guess actually, before we get into this too deeply, for people who don't know what the tree of Tenere, I always call it Tenere, but I guess it's Tenere. It was a, a huge digital uh, light sculpture that premiered at Burning Man in 2018, 19? Uh, 2017, actually, I want to say, if I'm getting that right. Yeah, I think it was 2017. <laughs> wow. All right. And um, it was like a volumetric. The leaves were all uh, LED, and it was, a, it was a huge kind of like volumetric cloud of pixels. Um, but it looked like an, a real tree. It was very, uh, it was very uh, realistic. It was beautiful. And it's since blown up. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, full-size tree. I forget the exact dimensions. I want to say it was between 30 and 40 feet tall. And um, yeah, every leaf uh, was uh, molded with LEDs inside of it, uh, all of which were addressable. I forget what we exactly ended up with, somewhere between probably 100 and 125,000 uh, distinct LEDs. Um, wow. Yeah, wow. which was super fun. So Studio Drift, who did the hardware? I was um, very, very the... uh, curious to, to know what, what groups participated in what um, what capacities in that project. Yeah, it's a huge mix of people. The, the project was initiated by this guy, Zachary Smith, uh, who's from San Francisco. He kind of uh, had this concept um, went around, built the team. Um, Symmetry Labs was involved. They did a lot of the hardware design. Um, most I did most of the animation software using my LX Studio framework. Um, there's a company called Nature Maker that did the fabrication of the, uh, the tree structure itself. They don't do any electronics, but they have a long history of um, building artificial, very realistic artificial trees uh, for all sorts of, uh, you know, for whether it's theme parks or shopping malls, this type of thing. Um, that thing looks like a movie prop, man. It almost looks like, yeah, uh, that company, you know, they're really like cool. Right they're, the Muppets or, they are know, down some, in um, Southern California and they just have this crazy uh, warehouse down there that it reminded me, I don't know if you've watched Westworld, um, oh, but yeah. there's these yeah. scenes where there's just these like rows of, uh, you know, fake, uh, fake human beings but that are super realistic and i had the same like uncanny experience down there you walk into these guys warehouse and it's just these rows of uh trees that are in various states of uh i thought you were gonna say like human looking <laughs> robots i was like wow creepy no oh no no not at all it was more though that you would see like oh that tree is still clearly just some pieces of metal but then this one on the other end looks completely realistic now and you'd, you'd kind of see uh the stages being worked through but um wow something for everybody right it's like we just specialize in making trees Come yeah for it's a it's a it was a i forget the exact details but the backstory was very funny the guy who started the company was kind of just this artist and he'd started doing that somehow and then just kind of uh i guess sort of just sort of stumbled into this you know actually existing market demand for that type of thing and ended up growing a whole whole business just around that but they have a very cool uh it was very cool to see their process which is still very um not super automated still a lot of just weird mixtures of goops and paints and resins um mostly so that's still a, applied by hand that they just figure out is it um like what is the material is it like a rubber that makes um, the trunk no the, the inside is steel they use steel tubing that they'll weld together for the core frame but then yeah they'll apply um i don't even know the exact mist of ingredients or but they'll put a sort of mesh over that that then they adhere this yeah mixture of like resin and paint um yeah because i remember people were climbing it on playa yeah, until we unfortunately had to uh, restrict that because one too many uh, crazy people were uh, perhaps climbing it slightly too quickly and too far up it in uh, Burning Man states of mind. And uh, yeah. Burning Man, no way. That's crazy. Yeah, unbelievable. You know. Yeah. 
So that's cool. And you, you started working with Symmetry, or that collaboration from the beginning. Yeah, you were part of that, the, the tree project from, from the start. Um, I joined the tree sort of in the middle when Zach had first come to me. Um, I'd met with him, I forget, it was probably the year before. It might have even been like December 2016 or something. Um, and at first, actually, I thought he was crazy. He was like, we're going to do this many LEDs. And um, the the concept was a bit crazier at the beginning where the the leaves were going to, it was all going to be wireless and the, each leaf was going to be solar powered and there's going to be some kind of blockchain <laughs> thing between the leaf. And I, I was kind of like, I was like, uh, this sounds cool, but, uh, I am, I am unconvinced that this is uh, realistic. Um, anytime anybody says wireless with some kind of production, I'm just like, no, yeah, no, same. That, <laughs> so I was there. just sort of like, okay, cool. I'm like, I'm not sure this guy knows what he's getting into. And I forget exactly what I was like, you know, keep me posted. Like, uh, some of that you might have to like, yeah, technically pair back a little bit on that. But so I just told him like, keep in touch with me, keep me posted. Um, and I think I was kind of cu curious to just see like, yeah, is this project going to, how's it going to develop? Um, but then, yeah, no, by, by the middle of, um, the next, um, uh, beginning of 2017, I saw like, oh, this is really going to be a thing. He'd, uh, gotten in touch with symmetry labs. They were working on it as well um so zach's not part of symmetry lab zach, zach is, like is not own. no zach just independently um just kind of came up with this and and just went out and, and formed a team around it um that's cool man i don't think i know him i'll have to meet him sometime yeah no he's great it's not you know he doesn't do a ton uh of like he's he has a you know full-time normal job in the um tech industry but um but has done sort of artistic things odds and ends on the side and this i think was yeah his uh having been a burning man i forget how many times he'd been before that but i think then he had this like okay cool i'm um, like time to to make a thing happen so um, yeah. and he's really an excellent um just like project manager and leader um which i think is really yeah i mean i i i thought he did a great there were so many moving parts on this and so many different people like there's so many people yeah, no, that's a huge listed, that's a core component to any project any anything that rises above a certain level of complexity it's like you have to have some kind of dispassionate manager to to make sure the gears fit together otherwise it's just a bunch of egos in a room you know yeah <laughs> it's still always that but as you say yeah otherwise it's just that <laughs> yeah, yeah right exactly yeah yeah no and i there's so many people i can't even possibly mention everyone but there's people that came on so many volunteers that did the power system people that assembled leaves people that assembled just uh like gift leaves that we gave to donors people that did the event programming um sky shlomo did the control board it was just like the list is people that volunteered to carpenters that constructed the base for the thing out there. It was just a, a crazy, uh, yeah, a crazy group effort that very much is one of those, like only at Burning Man or only for Burning Man did, did this many people somehow come out of the woodwork and, and put in all this time and effort. Um, That's cool. But yeah. it was your software. So you produced, uh, what you call it LS Studio? Yeah, LX Studio is what I call it. Yeah, I've basically just been working on that for, uh, I guess, she's almost like 10 years now. Uh, I think my first Burning Man was 2009, I want to say. Um, and then I started um, uh, the, the year after that. I was like, okay, cool. I'll dip into this uh, light art thing. This seems seems interesting. Um, I, my background was in software engineering, so that side of it felt very approachable to me. And I was just you know kind of curious to pick up a new hobby or creative interest at that time um so yeah i just started uh putting together that year i just did a little a simple just kind of 2d grid of lights uh with um yeah just abstract abstract algorithmic um patterns running on it and just since i've just basically like have this little pile of software that has just built up and up um as i've done more in projects and gotten involved in in various different um pieces over the years since um and yeah, yeah the, when i was over of... at heron that time you uh we you showed it to me briefly but um we got to make that happen man i want i want to demo you know it's it's such cool software and uh what you guys did with it is so amazing i'm very much into into volumetric lighting design so that it's yeah i've been curious about it ever since i saw the tree actually yeah. before that when i saw the cubes i was like what are they using Right. Yeah. It was essentially the same. Um, 
yeah, I'd been involved um, pretty early on with the first uh, generations of the cubes when that was uh, also grew out of a Burning Man project, um, sort of before Symmetry was formed into a company. Um, and yeah, well, that's how I found out about Symmetry was through the the Sugar Cubes installation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I actually forget which year. I want to say it must have been 2011 or 12, maybe. Um, can't remember exactly, but yeah, way back. And when. that was Alex, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was uh, Alex Green's brainchild. Um, there was sort of the first year; it didn't quite. Um, I, I've, I'm trying to remember exactly. I think 2011. There was sort of a V1 of it where the cubes were actually all. It was all like kind of just one standalone piece where the cubes were actually all welded together. It was all sort of just pieces of steel, so you couldn't like remove a single cube. It was a structure of cubes, but that really. Um, yeah, was completely welded and and with LED strip kind of um, then sort of just tracing uh, uh, across the edges of all those cubes. Um, but then the next year after that, he kind of redesigned the whole thing, switched to using a more where they actually became modular cubes that could be moved around um, each cube with its own with the LED strip sort of embedded within it. Um, and that's, when it, really, that's when it really became a thing. Yeah, it's it's a really cool system. They still do anything with that? I remember for a um, while they were well, trying to. Uh, it was trying to be like a like a. They were trying to rent it out, you know, or make. Uh, yeah, definitely. No, and they did. So, pieces. Right after that, it became a company, um, and then they redesigned them yet again. There was a guy named uh, Trip Vest who did a lot of the industrial design on that, and made it, and they made them like foldable, collapsible, single cable to hook into them. Um, and yeah, they did for uh, for a while. They uh, were renting those out, doing stage production with them. Um, I'm not sure if there are any still in the wild. I think the uh, I think as we talked about a little yesterday, I think the company has folded at this point. I'm not sure what will happen with the uh, with the existing. I actually don't know where the existing cubes like are or if the, what will happen with them. But um, I'm just but, yeah. really interested in the way that they were driving. Uh, driving everything over power over Ethernet. It was everything mm-hmm. was PoE. At yeah. the end, it was a, a really cool, well designed modular system. So you said yep. it was a guy Trip who did the industrial design. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he's uh, cool, yeah, man. he's still in San Francisco. He's always working on cool art and hardware projects. Uh, great guy. Great guy. I like him a lot. There's so many accomplished artists and designers in San Francisco. It blows my mind. Yeah, I mean, no, they're, I think they're you, everywhere, but San Francisco is particularly dense. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, what you were saying before about, yeah, when you leave San Francisco and get, get this different perspective on it, um, I think that's one of the things that, uh, that also does strike. Usually when I leave San Francisco, it's more like seeing all these blind spots San Francisco has where it's like, oh, out in the world, people care about all these other things and whatever. But uh, the flip side of that is then also realizing like, whoa, there are a crazy number of people that are really good at this set of things uh, in San Francisco that, um, yeah, that is clearly uh, extremely unique and few other places where, where it exists to that degree. Right. And even though a lot of the, there's been a, an outflow of, of underground artists um, from the city, there's still a real high density of professional artists who are designers or, um, yeah, I mean, they're, they're artistic and creative in their work. And uh, that, that, that personality has, has remained. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Cities are funny like that, man. Every city has its own personality. You know, San Francisco has a very unique uh, feel to it, just like every city. But that's that's one of the reasons I really like traveling is because um, it's almost like getting to know a person, but you're getting to know like a collection of people. And, you know, it's uh, it's interesting to see the differences. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think, and and you feel yourself shift very quickly, um, or I do at least when I travel places. I just sort of observe how I'm, I guess, subconsciously. I'll just realize, wow, I'm doing little things differently, and I don't feel like I ever uh, made a, a clear decision that I was going to start uh, doing this thing in this way. But I, I find it very interesting, yeah, to just absorb Drop that into and the absorb. Floor. Yeah, and then you and that's how I often feel. I realize, like, oh, I get it. That's coming from this place, or like that's something about, um, you know, you, you often won't even know. It's like 
what specific cultural cue did I pick up on? I'm not sure, but I can see from my own behavior that it somehow happened. Um, it's yeah. very, yeah, it's very fascinating. So for the last three months, I've been out in um, the British Virgin Islands doing a, a, a light art installation. And um, it's a very weird scene. I've never spent this much time in the Caribbean before. And uh, it's essentially a developing nation. You know, it's, it's uh, no offense to the British Virgin Islands. It's beautiful, but um, it's a different level of development than Europe or the Americas. And it's interesting. The pacing of life is very different. Everything takes a long time. Um, logistics are not tight. But that's a, that's, that's a, it's a negative and a positive because it forces you to slow down. And I've just noticed my personality has gotten a lot slower in the last three months, which is mm -hmm. great. It's been, it's been relaxing. It's funny, I was talking to uh, one of the, the guys that I'm crewing with and we were saying if this coronavirus had hit while we were at home, I think it would have been a lot more jarring because when it hit, my life was already upside down. You know, we were already out here living in this weird fantasy reality where, you know, we were basically already socially isolating. It's been me and the same four guys for the past three months just working on this project every day. And uh, I think if I was at home, it would have been even crazier because it would have been a complete disruption of the normal pattern of life. Must have been kind of like that for you in Amsterdam, right? You're just like, you know, everything's changing, and then all of a sudden, things started to change in this other way, and yeah, yeah, no, definitely, it is. Um, yeah, with that, I mean, the timing was both fortunate and unfortunate. We were sort of already wrapping our time up there, and we're going to be leaving within another month or two anyway. So um, we were kind of in a position to then we just sort of start saw the weirdness coming and the travel ban starting and we were like, uh, we should maybe, maybe we should accelerate this a little bit. But I think what you said though, um, is totally right though, of like what that experience is like is definitely a function of where you are. It was, um, it was also sort of stark for us. I think, uh, with the Corona stuff had was clearly spreading across Europe and already some big impacts being, uh, obviously felt and seen in, Italy especially, and, and us having been in Europe for a while, I think there was a little more immediacy um, for us to that, just from being a bit closer to it. Um, and it was it was fascinating even just coming back to Canada and then seeing, just in the conversations we were having with people here, we were like, oh, like we're a week ahead on the sort of understanding how serious this is. And you could, it was sort of like watching the same episode play again we're like okay it's just going to take seven more days but then we can predict like what the tone of the news is going to become like here and how it's going to feel and uh and that's most you know it's not exactly the same i think uh it's it is also interesting to see how different places do respond slightly differently and have still maintain their own sort of cultural approach to it but there there also does seem to be a little bit of a, a timing playbook that it's just i guess to some degree human nature that comes one, back to, to, a, to a place's it. personality yeah you know what i mean it's a here it's uh it's really bizarre man like um the i've been reading the local news and people are there's there's news articles in the newspaper about how this whole thing is a conspiracy to roll out 5g networks yeah like reading the newspaper like wow man like for real but that's that's what's going on you know and people uh it it Crisis brings out the idiosyncrasies and the 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 eccentricities of a of a culture. You know what I mean? And it's it's interesting to watch the different cultures and the different leaders um, deal with this. Like their personalities become very stark and clear. You're like, oh yeah, Trump is an asshole, and all he cares about is the economy. Obviously, Bolsonaro yeah. in Brazil. It's another great example. He's like, yeah, let the old people die as long as our economy doesn't crash you know uh canada they've got their shit together you know flatten the curve same with the bay area it seems like um yeah it's just really interesting to watch the whole thing unfold yeah no for sure i think it uh it also does remind me of yeah what we were talking about earlier with the sort of uh 
Yeah, different. What a place's sort of sense of urgency is and kind of how you're saying, yeah, the Bay Area definitely has a bit of that, like, you've got to be moving fast or you'll be left behind. All's got to be in the, in the midst of some kind of hustle type of thing. So there's, um, from afar, I mean, I perceive you can, I guess, see some of that in the response. I actually am impressed with how it seems like they've, uh, gotten, gotten ahead of it about as much as anywhere in the, in the United States. And oh, absolutely. But it's been a massive disruption. It's, oh, of uh, course. yeah, no, it was, especially in the early days of this, it was really crazy to, just to be in touch with all my friends and the people back home, you know, and to, to watch how everybody's life just stopped. And then everybody was like freaking out. And, um, you know, at first, you know, the, the natural instinct is to just kind of uh, make, make light of it. You know, you're just like, oh, like, what is this? Like how, you know, it's a 2% death rate. It's like, what, what could, you know, and then you start learning more and more and you're like, wow, this is actually a very serious thing. Um, but I think everybody went through that curve, you know, the, the curve of realization and places like the Bay, places like Italy, I'm sure, um, you know, they had that wake up call real quick. Whereas for, for me and maybe for you, I don't know what it was like in Amsterdam, but for me out here, it's just like, you know, we're, this, this is a bubble island, man. It's like, <laughs> even now, you know, we're in, we're in quote unquote lockdown, but I think there's been like one case on this island and and the government freaked out and basically uh, mandatory curfew for everybody for six days. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we've been, we've been under quarantine for six days, but after that, from what I can tell, everything's just going to go back to normal and, you know, we'll see what happens. No, exactly. Time will tell. This is uh, you know, it's, it's uh, a very fascinating worldwide experiment. Uh, I hate like expressing in that terms, not to, you know, diminish from the, the amount, the human tragedy of it. But, um, but yeah, when I'm able to, yeah, separate from the intensity of that, it is, it is a sort of like, whoa, like when in our lifetimes, never, I think has the entire world all, all taken approach to this one same thing at the same time and all these subtly different approaches and, I was thinking that. about that the other day, how this is really the first global crisis that um, I think that our generation has ever experienced, you know, and it, in, in that it's truly global, like it is everywhere in the world and everybody in the world is looking at the same thing right now, focused on the same issue, which is, uh, it's bizarre, you know, especially coming out of like the media shit show that was, you know, it's like you can't pay attention for, to anything for more than a couple days. Mm -hmm. And now it's, it's, uh, it's just gathered the, the collective consciousness of humankind. And we're like, nope, look at this. This is what's happening. And yeah, it's, it is fascinating. It's, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at things top down and trying to abstract yourself. Um, I don't think that belittles the, the suffering uh, I think it's important to put things into context and um, to look at things in the big picture. It's important in the process of putting, putting events into context. Do you know? Yeah, no, that's well said. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's more what I meant. It was like to, to doing both at once is, uh, is very possible. Yeah, man. <laughs> look at things like an alien. What would an alien say? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, right. Look at these monkeys. Look at these monkey people. <laughs> oh, I don't know what they would say. Yeah. So after this, are you going back to? Um, are you going back to Heron? Uh, Heron Arts is your studio in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, I mean, Heron we run as a yeah gallery and sort of event space. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's on, you know, indefinite hiatus at the moment. Um, definitely the falls into or the, the events. You mean? Well, the, or just uh, the it's really more of an event space. I mean, I do work out of there, um, but the space, it's more of a yeah public uh, event space. Um, I produce my I music and work on some of my projects there. But um, but yeah, I mean, I can kind of I do it from there, but I can do that from anywhere, uh, you know, with a computer and the stuff that i need but um yeah no i mean it's the the future i guess is unclear with that as with everything else we're kind of, we kind of just push the pause button on all the public side of that um you know it's a i mean the events we do or the capacity is more you know 100 to 200 so we'll we'll see when that size of uh, a venue becomes viable again so 
Um, but yeah, no, in the meantime, when we get back to San Francisco, yeah, I'll just continue most of the, fortunately, most of, um, you know, my individual work is, is on the computer. So I'm able to continue with that. Um, are you, um, what, what are you doing for work now? You're, you, I know that one of the things I wanted to ask you about is you started with Facebook, you left Facebook and you've kind of been full-time arting it from what it looks like to an outsider to me yeah. who doesn't really know, you know, know you that well. It seems like you've just been crushing it as a, as a musician and a, a producer. I was listening to some of your tracks today, man. You are a very talented producer. Love your music. Thanks, dude. Appreciate that. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's a hard question to, to answer. I'm kind of all over the place all the time. Uh, I mean, the, the short answer is I'm fortunate to, you know, have enough financial security from the Facebook thing to be able to, to play around with that. But I'm kind of always dividing my time between sort of three major areas. So there's Heron Arts, uh, the sort of uh, public facing side of that where we, yeah, we do roughly on a monthly schedule have art exhibitions uh, which will be a mixture of either community driven stuff where there are local artists or organizations that come in and do their thing in the space um my favorite example of that is a group called one found sound that we have in regularly they're a, a local chamber orchestra self-organized so they'll do concerts um and then the other side of that is um shows that we um curate and produce um it's curator tova lobats that works with me uh, on a lot of those um so that's one uh, major thing. Then on the music front, yeah, I continue to DJ, produce electronic music, and run a uh, dance music label called Manjumasi with uh, one of my best friends, uh, Atish Mehta, who used to live in San Francisco, lives in New York now. Um, so that's kind of a mixture. And then I'm always just, yeah, producing music and putting out uh, music, um, DJ mixes and releases. Um, and then the third wing, yeah, is kind of the light art and the programming um, where I'm either working as an artist on a specific um, project or working on the software framework side of it, um, which I obviously do use myself on my own projects, but also um, gets used by uh, other artists sort of in the community and various other uh, mostly Burning Man projects, but also some other uh, real world installations where people use that. So I kind of yeah, just am yeah, in this... When the lockdown ends, I want to. I want a full demo. Yeah, <laughs> demo no, for software. sure. I mean, I'm actually in lockdown mode. At the, I kind of have been trying to focus on it a bit more at the moment because, with sort of yeah, all the other you know, especially with all the music stuff and events, that's all pretty much totally on uh, on pause at the moment. So I'm I'm trying to make the most of it and just uh, sort of say, okay, cool, well, coding time, uh, I guess, um, and hopefully, uh, yeah, be able to make some. Uh, it's tough. You know, it's like, um, it's also a super distracted time. Like part of me feels like, Oh, I should be able to be so productive during this time where everything's on pause. But, uh, that's a, yeah, a little bit of wishful thinking that of course it's an incredibly distracted time as well with so much going on. But, uh, but yeah, no, I have been trying to, to do quite a bit of work on that at the moment. So that's um, cool, man. I've been doing Rhino classes, <laughs> Rhino, nice. Rhino yeah. 3D. Yeah. It's a, it is a, it's a good excuse. A lockdown is a great, focus for doing things that you don't generally have time for. Like I find I'm doing all of like meditated the other day. I've been working out a lot. Um, just really concentrating on self-improvement because there's nothing else to do, especially yeah. out here. Yeah. Right. Which is great. <laughs> yeah. No one, one hopes that, uh, I mean, yeah, it's fortunate for those of us that are in a situation yet yeah, to be able to, to take that tack on it. But, um, yeah, one hopes that uh, some of that will be able to stick in some way if there is a if there is a silver lining. Yeah, well, I'm sure it will. I mean, you just got to take these lessons and move forward with them. So, what are you working on now? Uh, what um, what pieces are you working on? What projects are you working on? Yeah, mostly just working on the the software at the moment. Um, most specifically for yeah future editions of the tree um but i'm also kind of more generally um just iterating on that software to my goal is to sort of eventually get it to a point where it's uh could be more of a right now it's sort of in between a creative professional application and a software developer toolkit it, it sort of now kind of assumes that the person using it probably has at least some uh software engineering ability um, but I would like to eventually get it to a point where that's not really a requirement and it could be used a bit more broadly. Um, 
I use the metaphor of uh, digital audio workstations, uh, programs like Ableton or GarageBand, that type of thing. So I, I've sort of been thinking about the arc of what I want to head towards being a, a digital lighting workstation um, that's geared more for, um, there's obviously a lot of great programs out there uh, for lighting. I find that when I got into doing light art, looking at what was out there, I could sort of see, oh, a lot of this comes from the sort of um, stage history with uh, thinking about, uh, you know, cue lists and going through a performance. And uh, well, that's the, traditional lighting software. Exactly. That's, that's sort paradigms. of what it grew out of. And I realized that I was coming at it from a different angle where I was like, oh, my background's in electronic music and I'm not really trying to put on a stage show here. I'm trying to make a piece of abstract algorithmic art that sort of is three-dimensional and develops over time. Um, that's, so that's my favorite just, yeah, paradigm to, to look at lighting software from, you know, looking at it, a light performance or a lighting piece, almost like a, like a synthesizer track that you can build and, and, and morphs um, dynamically. You know what I mean? Like I, Completely, I, yeah. I, I know the lighting cue paradigm because I came from the, the world of show production. Um, but originally I was coming from like a motion graphics perspective so it was like timeline to cue stack and then to uh now into more like the generative world of algorithmic um pattern based lighting design yeah completely no that's exactly uh the experience that i had as well where uh well without having any actual um stage production experience but yeah just coming from that music angle and looking at it and being like this is totally feels like a synthesizer to me um and particularly you know i mean who else the, treats their software like that is um this group called play modes uh they're out of barcelona mm. and they're like an audio video band almost but one of their instruments is a is a lighting synthesizer they're light artists but music is just as much of a part of their performance as uh as as the musical aspect and um yeah they they just have a really unique way of approaching lighting design and light art where the same tool that they use to produce the light patterns also produces the 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 sounds that you're hearing so it is so synchronized it's all LFOs, you know, mm -hmm. it's all, yeah, uh, it's no, a, exactly. LFOs are the main concept. Uh, that was like the, one of the first things I implemented when doing lighter. I was like, Oh, I just want a ton of LFOs. Like <laughs> LFOs will solve all the, uh, not solve, but they will, you know, reveal well, all such the cool, a cool artistic effects. To use. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah. if you're not doing contextual visuals, I feel like there's a lot of emphasis placed on reproduction of imagery in um, commonly available lighting tools because everybody kind of comes at it through the pixel mapping paradigm. Yeah. Right? Where a more, the more artistic element of the light art genre or the, the lighting design. Um, you know, mind frame that they're coming at it as a, as a, a visual music instrument, you know? Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's such a difficult, um, it's such a difficult trade-off. I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because if you're attempting to create anything sort of I mean, commercially viable or reusable video is just so appealing because there's so many great tools that interoperate with it there's so much great video content out there it's very standardized you can it's it's just super flexible so i completely understand sort of yeah okay maybe you have a slightly different you have a sort of 3d lighting installation but it's, it's very tempting to figure out how to um, have the video be very impressive existing video tools work with it but um yeah it's just well, it's just metric uh, lighting it's, it's well, that's different where it just makes less sense yeah but it's that's where it's like i see the temptation to get it to work but yeah i think for me um that was kind of what made working on this type of software interesting to me was realizing oh these volume these 3d sculptures though they're just really it's just kind of a different thing and they're usually the individual pixels or the the lighting fixtures are far enough apart that it's sort of sparse and like it's not it's just not a video at all it doesn't really map to that concept in your brain when you experience it it's kind of a different thing so 
It comes um, down to content, right? It's like, what is the what is the most sensible way to produce content for the display that you're addressing? And right. if you're talking about a video wall, right? Like a like a an X by Y, you know, rectangular arrangement of LEDs, then video makes perfect sense. But when you start to take LEDs or your display medium, your pixels, and arrange them arbitrarily in 3D space, then all of a sudden using a two-dimensional plane or platter to serve your, your content doesn't make any sense anymore. And uh, one of the things, we, we have migrated to a, a software package called Smode, which is a, a written by a French group. Um, and it's a, it's, a, it's a game engine, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a game engine that allows you to do crazy things with particle effects and, uh, and 3D content and then map that onto a point cloud of pixels. And you can specify your point cloud by specifying where your pixels are in 3D space pull that out of Rhino or whatever. Um, but the thing that I'm really very interested in is unique ways to generate compelling content in three-dimensional space. And for me, it's all about abstract content. So I don't know. I really, I'm very curious about your software, man. I really want to, I want to play with it. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think, and that's the, that's exactly the challenge. It's like, you do want to map out yeah, the, the very specific physical nature of each project. And the, the thing that I've not yet figured out super, I mean, I have various ideas, but it's like how to make content that works well, that's portable across very different uh, types of 3d installations. Cause in my experience, I've found that the best stuff is always uh, when it's sort of hand coded for the, for the given uh, installations where you know the exact, how far things apart are, you know what the real world dimensions are and how that maps to, you know, how big something feels. Um, well, I think and that's, that's natural. Yeah, no, and the, I enjoy doing that. The more complex the display, the more custom your content has to be. It's just like projection mapping. You know, you can't, you can't come out with like a content pack for projection mapping because the content has to fit on the right, surface. Exactly. It's yeah. the same thing with, uh, with volumetric content. So yeah. having an environment that allows you, you know, like a, like a, a work workflow that allows you to create compelling content on the fly. is very valuable. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think what's tough there is figuring out for me, it's like trying to find the line between where to, um, where to do that as a software engineer and where to just code things that are specific to a very precise, uh, artistic situation. Uh, versus thinking about yeah what what's the right level where something can become just a tool with a UI that uh, that anyone can use because there's always a trade of course with uh, like hand coding always retains the greatest flexibility and you're going to be able to get the most specific effects for a, for a given installation that way but it uh, it obviously requires a lot more time a lot more expertise uh, it not as many people can use that. So it's sort of, it's limiting in that way where not as much can be explored. So I think that's like the high level problem that I think about a lot with this, where these, these really 3D sculpture like installations. Node paradigm, right? Yeah. Like, I've seen I feel more like people that's a doing ground. this now using like touch designer and that type of thing. Um, There's on, a lot of software packages that use that, that paradigm to bridge the gap between straight code right. um, and like a, you know, like a, like a stack of code. Uh, and more graphical. I, I'm not a coder. I don't. I don't write uh, stacks of code. But I am very into node-based um, programming environments like Touch Designer um, because you know I think in SignalFlow. And when right. I look at those those setups, I can very clearly visualize what I'm trying to do and figure out ways to to do it through that that environment. Yeah, it's a funny trade-off because, I mean, yeah, they're definitely, it's a much more approachable programming environment and uh, they're usually built so that you can't, I mean, you can mess things up with it, but you usually can't crash the entire program unless you do something really wrong. Um, but yeah, you it's funny. I always, you can definitely break them. Well, you can't, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can, you can certainly get not the result you intended. Um, but I think it's funny because, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done work in those environments and as a, um, as a software engineer, I actually often find Node flow programming frustrating 
because I often realize like, oh, I know exactly what I'm trying to do here. And I could just write the code to do it. And sometimes well, yeah, I mean, creating the structure. You've got the wizard you know, skills, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's fine. You but can cast the magic spells, man. Funny about, at the same time, I can appreciate that, yeah, this notes, it's much more approachable and it's much more comprehensible for a much wider audience. But it's figuring out exactly, like figuring out what the right level is for those abstractions is always the, uh, that's the always really, really tricky bit of it. Um, so yeah, but gen I'm generally positive on those. I've done a lot of work in uh, another project I'm involved in San Francisco actually is uh, called Envelop, which is um, an ambisonic uh, immersive sound space that uh, that also has a lighting component synchronized with the audio. And we use uh, Max and Max for Live to build the the tools for that, that uh, power the, the spatialization of sound and um, yeah, working on that, it's a it's a very uh it's a it's a love hate for me where um it's been really fun and really quick to build uh using those tools. But uh yeah, working with Max, you mean? Yeah, where um it's it's quick, the flow programming thing makes sense, but I definitely have my moments where I'm like, man, if I could just write this in normal code, it would be uh which, which I could of course, but would be uh would come with all these other costs of needing uh the the especially with Max's integration, the Max for Live integration in Ableton is uh is really great makes it very easy for us to distribute those tools and makes it very easy for other people to use them so we uh i it's it's the right choice for that project uh for those reasons uh doing doing custom software would make it a lot um a lot more complex and harder for people to um to work with and work on but but yeah, yeah no i, I mean Max it's, MSP there's never been a better in, uh... time the amount of tools out there now it's 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 pretty incredible it really is, man, and uh, I, I feel it, I feel like right now um, the 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 breadth of tools that's available for doing custom custom uh, to develop custom tools like tools that allow you to build tools. Yeah, meta tools have, are uh, the new tools. <laughs> yeah, it's really blossomed, and uh, it's pretty cool to see you know uh, Touch Designer becoming massively adopted. Um, I went to the the Touch Designer Summit. Uh, a couple years ago, it was back in uh, 2017 in Berlin, I think. I'm probably wrong about that, but it was either 2017, 2018. It was uh, it was amazing to see how many people turned up and the the variety of of professions that that were interested in in touch designer and what they were using it for. I mean, you can build whatever you want. You can build a lighting console. You can build anything. Yeah, no, it's super cool. Do you actually know? I don't know the backstory of the company. I'm curious what their like initial, what they initially built it for. What the what the earliest applications were. A derivative. It was a, a video. Um, it was focused on like motion graphics and video. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but uh, that's from what I understand. That was. Uh, that was the origin story of, of derivative and, and touch designer. It's a, it's a fairly old platform. Like it's yeah. been around for, for over 10 years. Yeah, no, I think, and that's, what's cool about a lot of these things is you realize uh, they, they feel like all of a sudden they're big and popular and everyone's using it. But yeah, whenever you dig, you, you, you typically find out, Oh, someone's been working on this thing for a long time, actually refining the concepts and the ideas and, um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, that one definitely, it is cool to see how many things it's addressing now, which, uh, was, yeah, kind of why I brought that up. Cause I was like, you know, when they first started making this, I'm sure it was, uh, I'm sure they were not imagining just how many different things that would end up being used for. It's very cool. Yeah. Well, I was talking to, uh, Matthew Reagan, um, who was one of, um, obscure as lead developers i think he left the company at this point but um not positive about that but he uh he's been a part of the the touch designer community for a very long time that's how obscura found him and scooped him up he was like making mm -hmm. tutorial videos out of college for for derivative and um to see what obscura did with touch designer is pretty amazing in fact, White Void's system is all based on Touch Designer, I believe, as well. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, you know, very it's, cool. Um, yeah. Like, White Void's system is all about um, kinetics. You know, it's it's expressing waveforms uh, through 
three-dimensional arrays of motors <laughs> yeah and uh and then you look at um obscura and their thing is all is all three-dimensional projection of content and uh to get that out of the same package is is pretty pretty crazy yeah no it's incredible the the kinetic stuff's always been really interesting to me and on my wish list uh i mean my if i had way more time than i do i would love to get into playing with something in that uh arena but well it's 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 interesting because now there are uh there's a lot of motors we actually almost did a project last year um that used arrays of dmx controllable winches Mm -hmm. which i was really i was really excited about the the concept because you know you can control those with a um as if it was a grayscale light yeah no exactly it's just another artnet destination yeah you know it's just another it's another uh dimension in in the 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 dmx flow and you can just you can treat the x y uh you can treat the 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 amount of um release that your motor is is giving as just another uh you know gradient yeah yeah, I worked on one project that did this uh, a couple years uh, ago at Burning Man. The uh, Fold House Collective did a, a project called Radia Lumia, um, where yeah, we uh, sort of modified the uh, LX Studio software to have an additional. Um, they had these sort of umbrellas that uh, that could be programmed to open and close with uh, with light strips on them, um, and did it exactly yeah as you described, just sort of uh, as an additional acted as if it were additional lighting channel that's being animated the same way that you would animate a color but uh yeah just in this dimension of open closing it was super fun very cool um but yeah a lot of i mean they built those uh that was done the very burning man way with a sort of custom little control board and motors and everything um so i think yeah that's what i i think that's you know it's an interesting meta problem i think with a lot of this light and interaction art is there's there's often what I see is there's two ends of the spectrum. There's the very DIY, you're down to go build these things and do hardware boards and electrical engineering, or you got to go for like really professional, really expensive products that exist on the market that are usually, you know, for serious stage or theater applications, but that are sort of unapproachable if you're a hobbyist or if you're just like, hey, I have this cool idea, I want to mess around with it, but am I going to buy 16 winches at you know however much a pop? It sort of uh, doesn't make sense if you don't have an actual. Um, and that's one thing I'm curious to see involved in this whole space because it's still, with lighting, I've watched that kind of change over the past 10 years where the DIY stuff is both getting less tricky like whereas you used to really have to know how to um you know deal with uh arduinos and all this kind of stuff but there's getting to be offerings on the DOM that are yeah it was very low level but now there's starting to be more and more packages that make that a lot easier much more approachable um and at the same time on the other end the professional gear as with most things gets less expensive slowly over time and you don't need to spend the crazy amounts of money you maybe once would have had to so it's cool to see that collapse i expect as that happens to see a lot more cool artistic output emerge from that just as a broader number of people can decide hey actually i'm gonna go experiment with that and there's a way in um so the kinetic stuff i view as probably being a little earlier on that curve where it's still either really hard work or very expensive uh to set up but hopefully hopefully we'll see the same thing i think it's less approachable it's um there's not the amount of, of yeah, there's not the the same amount of hardware that's pre-built to make it accessible. So it is it's still very low level. Yeah. Um, there are companies that make great winch winch systems, but um there's also less they're more of a niche application. I I feel like they are anyway. You yeah, know, for sure. Uh, well and when I'd last looked into it, I was trying to find some, but I realized well the the winches that are commercially available are being built to 
crazy safety standards because they're usually being used on a real set in a theater and they're often holding something heavy. And if this thing messes up, somebody potentially gets seriously injured, um, which <laughs> is great. Of course, you want that recently. for any <laughs> commercial project. But then I was sort of like, oh, well, if I'm just trying to like screw around with making a little art installation, holding up some lights that are moving, like definitely don't actually need that degree of safety, but completely understand that, yeah, well, it's difficult for anyone to commercially design um, and sell me a sort of medium safe thing for uh you know it's it it creates a there's a strange go on, uh, go on alibaba Ch- china's making some that's true yeah i can find pretty, if I put pretty a little, affordable digging. winches yeah. i wouldn't put a i wouldn't put anything heavy over my head with them but <laughs> right you know they'll lift your lights and they're made for that yeah okay i'm gonna hit you up after this and get some uh get some links off you yeah absolutely man absolutely um well i think that we should probably wrap it up in the next couple minutes um but uh yeah this has been a really really good interesting conversation i'm glad that we we got a chance to jam yeah likewise man really fun talking shop yeah absolutely when i get back into the bay well <laughs> when when the crisis is over let's <laughs> yeah. hang out again yes for sure let's yeah we'll, we'll see which one of us makes it back there first <laughs> it's not even clear at this point yeah no that's definitely uh it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. All right, man. Well, thanks again. Yeah, totally. Uh, we'll, uh, thanks for having me. I'll dude. talk to you soon. Yeah, definitely. Be in touch. All right, brother. Bye. Bye-bye.